Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium size businesses and organizations by designing world-class strategic plans, but more importantly, help keep them accountable to actually get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. We're really excited. My book, Lost at CEO, is released. It's a bestseller, and we encourage you to go out and take a look. It is on available in all the major areas, amazon.com, bondsandnoble.com, as well as Audible. So go out and take a look at that, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the book. And we would also appreciate your Amazon review on that as well. We'd like to give a shout out and thank you to Bob Neubauer. He is one of the most connected people in the world. And he introduced us to our guest today, who is Andy Takata. Andy has worked as a city manager with over 21 years of experience with three full service cities and two counties. His strong experience in economic development, planning, recreation, and development. And he's also worked with the municipalities, water, wastewater, and electrical utilities. He's also remembered, which is, this was really when we talked three years ago, when we got connected with, he actually has been a water polo official and made it all the way to the Olympics. He'll tell us more about that later on. Andy has a incredible resume we'll go through, but Andy, I would just want to welcome you to the Measure Success podcast today. Thank you, Carl. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, Andy, you have... It was fun. Once again, it was three years ago when Bob introduced us. And immediately, that was actually soon thereafter where we actually started our podcast. From that experience, I was like, gosh, I got to have you on because your story is pretty remarkable um, in, in so many different ways. But why don't you share with us what has been keeping you busy most recently in terms of your vocation and occupation? Well, recently, I've been working for the city of DuPont as the city administrator. So so that's been almost five years now. Uh, I think I met you a, a couple of years after I had started and I uh, had retired previously. And I still had that fire in me that I still wanted to do something that I thought was productive. And that's why I went back to work. A lot of people don't know what a city manager is. So give us some more detail because in my experience with city managers, you are one of the busiest group of people and servants to a community to help make sure that things actually work. So describe the difference. Like, for example, a lot of people will think, well, there's a mayor, right? And there the mayor is leading it. But the reality when it comes to getting things done, there's a city manager who's behind it all. Right. So why don't you describe in a little bit more detail what that is for those who aren't familiar with it? So there's mainly two types of governments uh, for local governments. One is the uh, council mayor form of government, then the council manager form of government. So the council mayor form of government usually is one where the mayor is directly elected and in small cities, usually they're part-time and they hire a COO who basically runs the city and makes all the decisions, but he has to be involved as far as at least a phone call, et cetera, et cetera. Council manager form of government, the manager actually is the CEO of the city but has to follow the policies of the council. The mayor acts as a ceremonial mayor who runs the meeting and does some other things. There are some other forms of government that are a little different, but that's the major differences between those two. So the city manager basically 
is the CEO and has department heads or assistant city managers that report to them for the whole operations of the city following the policies of the council. Now, I have driven past DuPont many times and have been in the city as I've gone up and down between Portland and Seattle. You've experienced a fair amount. Has there been a fair amount of growth in the city since you've been there and a lot of changes? Well, there was growth. The city was incorporated in the 1950s, and it was a little town where the DuPont Dynamite Factory had all their workers lived in this old historic village. When Weyerhaeuser came in with Quadrant, they ended up going from roughly 600 people to now 10,000. And it's a planned community. It's really a beautiful community. People are very happy with the way the city uh, actually looks that way. So there's been a lot of changes for the last 20 years. And there'll be more changes because there's two large areas that still have to be developed. Yeah, very interesting. So often when it comes to city changes, things don't typically happen overnight. Right. You have you have to plan ahead. I mean, there there is a lot of people involved. And, and this is where strategic planning is really important, right? When it comes to working in large organizations. Give me an idea of what that takes. You know, when we're you have, let's say there's an idea and we're gonna build a new city park as just a small example. And and because we think there's gonna be important for our community to be able to do this. How long does that process typically take, right? To go from ideation to it getting executed and approved, just like that one small example. I know that's an unfair thing, right? Because there's a lot of challenges that could happen in between. So that's a very interesting question, a good question, because people always, and I'll, I'll use this example, we want the city to operate as a business. And I totally agree we should operate as a business. That's mean finances, all that kind of stuff. But the only difference is decisions aren't based on profit and loss. You already have an income stream, which is coming from the public or from developers, and therefore it becomes more difficult when decisions are sometimes based on politics instead of business, and so or on profit and loss. So I would say a typical thing from planning everything to construction, you can do it in three to five years, and that seems like a long time. If I was a private developer, I wouldn't need to have public comment. I wouldn't need to have public input, I won't have to have transparency, I would just go ahead and just go ahead and do it. So there's a little difference between government and businesses. And that's why, unfortunately, we can't run on profit and loss, because it'd be a lot different story. And we'd have a lot more complaints, I'm sure, too. Okay, this this we didn't talk about in planning for this, but it, it may be considerate. I remember when Hurricane Katrina happened a long time ago, and it devastated right um, New Orleans and, and a lot of the the Gulf area. Right. And understandably, citizens and people from around the country are like, "Well, why why can't we fix this?" And now we have more recently Lahaina, right, and and Hawaii that just got devastated from the fires and just a horrible, tragic right, oh. that that happened so quickly. But I have to sometimes go back to if somebody has actually been in the process of building one home, just one home, that's in a planned development, just that one home typically takes a year, right? And this is once again, when the infrastructure has been put in place, when it comes to like significant change, building a whole community, in the case of Lahaina, rebuilding the entire city again. And of course, we don't know what we don't know. And we know there's a lot of people who are willing to donate and put in time and money and energy and effort and something. But like a development, a new city, the infrastructure behind it, 
I don't want to put you on the spot because you're not being held accountable to this, but how long does something like that take to like completely redo a new community? Well, in, in the case of an emergency such as Lahaina is, there's a lot of things that can be waived and then quicker, but they still have to follow certain things like building standards, those type of things. Problem is they're now probably under the new building codes. So when they were built back in history, they're probably now dealing with sprinklers for all businesses inside. They're dealing with different private wind requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So the requirements have become more. So the biggest time it's going to take actually is going to be the actual plans that they actually have for those those facilities that they're going to rebuild. So, you know, I can't guess how long it would take, but is also going to depend. It also depends on the property owner and what they want to see in their vision in regard to that. If they were city-owned property, then there would probably be a long, longer process because of the visioning and those type of things you want to do with the public, where you may not have that with the private sector in regard to rebuilding quicker. But they still have to get their permits, and there are ways in emergencies that that fees can be waived, et cetera, et cetera you know, if, if that's what the government wants to do. Yeah. And there's a whole different other challenge of the insurance proceeds, right? If people even had insurance, right. And, yeah. and, and when, and points of devastation, I think once again, what I think the key point behind all this is when, when there's this desire for change. And once again, I go back to the simple example of one house, and then you're trying to do a re, whole community. It takes years, not months, right. To, to make these changes and move through it. So let, let's just talk about political side, right, is, is more challenging, right? There, there is perhaps a new idea, a new concept that the city wants to embrace and drive through. And, and you don't have to do anything specific to the city of DuPont, Andy. Um, but I, I'm curious for you of, of you are moving down a certain direction and the city council comes in because of a political ideology that has come and swept through due to current topics. How do you deal with something like that strategically? When, when there's a new idea or concept, and perhaps you can give us an example of something like this, and, and how do you navigate your strategy to help deal with something like that? Well, for, first of all, that happen, can happen at any election where the whole ideology changes from somebody who wants to see a lot of growth to somebody who doesn't want to see much growth. First of all, if you deal with somebody that wants to see a lot of growth, in planning, there's certain aspects that said, okay, the, here's, here's the plan. The council's bought into this. Uh, we call them comprehensive plans here, some places called general plans. And that planning strategy is basically done for us every eight to 10 years, as far as advanced planning. Now it could happen in every year because you have the ability to change your plan every year in Washington. So by so the the council, if it changes ideology, it, it still has to deal with the current comprehensive plan. They can't really change in midstream. If they do and they rezone it, let's say uh, something was zoned multifamily, they don't want to see it multifamily, so they go to single family, right? Well, that's also a lost investment now in the person who owns the property. So. Us as staff have to remind them as they expose themselves to lawsuits if they, they take away the value of the property just to, from somebody else. 
So it's not as easy to make that change. Uh, you have to do it through the general plan, but you also have to worry about making that change and devaluing the property. So there's those protections. In Washington, a lot of smaller cities have what they call a hearing examiner. They develop that hearing examiner here. So that way, that person just looks at what the, the comprehensive plan is and either agrees with any challenges or disagrees with any challenges. And the council, on many cases, isn't even involved in that. So it keeps it, the ideology doesn't change from the original plan unless there's changes made during during the years. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. It, it's. But what it does is it requires a lot of communication, a lot of focus in that challenge, once again, of, of as you said, you, you're already in the middle of a plan, like in this case you described, and, and how do you deal with different ambitions one way or another, right? With right. the new political leadership that that come in, I think is, is always a challenge. It, in the business side, it's not much different, Andy, right? You, you, you can have a plan moving, and this is the more common thing is the entrepreneur himself or the CEO sees a shiny object. And, and that shiny object, you know, so to speak, is what drives them away from focusing on their current plan because they're kind of bored, right, of, of what they're currently doing, even though they might be doing great and, and they, they don't want to keep on moving forward with it. And those are huge, big challenges. And, and management consistently is struggling with that, right, of keeping their CEO back on track to this is how we make money or this is how we serve or the greater good is through this process if there were a not-for-profit organization. There's a book called... If it ain't broke, break it. I don't know if you've heard of it, oh. but it's a book that talks about basically if you're happy the way things are, redo it. So don't be happy with what you have. Things are fine. See if you can make it even better by breaking it and breaking it down. And so I've tried to use that philosophy with work too. If things are great, then what can we do to make it even better than it is right now instead of being satisfied? And I think that's a bad rap for some businesses you know i think the businesses that don't go from good to great do that they're happy with the profits they're making and they don't want to be inventive and that happens in government a lot too true it is fast it's so fascinating once again of how it happens right on, on, on the private and business and I, and I do like that concept of it's important not to get lazy right and thinking that we're doing everything right we have to we do have to re, re uh, reinvent look again at how we could be more effective and, and what it usually does, it creates excitement for those who are interested. The, the challenge is for those who don't want to change, right? Because they're thinking, oh, let's just do the same way we've been doing it all the time, recognizing there's probably a lot of waste that's been built in over the years, right? That could be eliminated, you know, if we rethink the way how we do things. One of the things, uh, Andy, I'm sure, as I was saying, your, your bio, you know, city manager, 21 years experience, three full services in two contract cities, not counties. Um, forgive me for that. I just want to make that correction. We're talking through this. But- I'm curious for you, as here you've been working for a long, you know, two decades in this experience alone and being this management experience. Overall, how do you measure success in that capacity? You know, it's uh, being in the private sector, you can see profit and loss, and that's how you can probably measure your success. And so being in the public sector, things may happen today that I will never see during my tenure at the city. But because we started it, it created that. So you have to get some internal feelings in regard to what you're doing is going on the right path. I think the way I measure success, I measure success through my staff. And that sounds funny, is that if I can make them successful in what they're doing, 
they will follow through what I'm not going to be able to see when I finally call it quits here. You have to be satisfied internally because externally you're not going to get it. Residents are never totally happy with what goes on in the city. Council's never really happy what goes on the city. So you really have to look at what you're doing and you know what you're doing is right for the community and for the majority of the community, not just for the minority of the community. Because just like in businesses, you hear from the minority that's unhappy with something, you don't hear from the majority that really loves your product. So you have to keep that in mind. And I really look at the growth of my staff because I know they can carry on whatever I've started as the city manager. I I think that's a wonderful view that you have as your success is the success of your team. And, and I think that's a very impressive. And I think it probably helps you be a great leader through that because, and they probably enjoy working for you, right? Because you do care ultimately about their success. And I do appreciate what you said there is often you don't get to see the fruit of your labor, you know, because things do take longer, you know, for a policy to go through in a city, these are not overnight changes, but when the results actually take place, you get to see that through the team that's, that's been involved with it. And I'm looking through all your awards, which we didn't all go through. There is incredible the amount of awards. And I'm not for the sake of, of and I know you're a humble person. We're not going to go through the, the literally the all the different awards that you've gone through through your career. But I want to flip over to your personal, your your vocation side, which is water polo. Tell us a little bit more about because water polo is its its own interesting like passion, right? You know, who those who are involved with it. I mean, there's such a passion for those who are in water polo. And you, you've been able to go to the highest level of being involved with it. So describe a little bit, how in the heck did you get into this and, 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 and why, what has given you so much passion to continue it on over the years? Well, back in the day, I used to coach and actually play when I was in high school and college. So when I got out of college or out of playing water polo, I went into coaching and I thought I was going to be a coach. It's going to be a teacher and a coach. I ended up coaching a very good team, and at the same time, I was refereeing. So the first year, and I was very lucky because I, I filled a gap that wasn't there before. So after a few years, I ended up getting on the, the college list as a referee. I was lucky to get that at that point in time. So when that happened, uh, actually, on my first NC2 tournament, I actually got the referee the championship game. So, uh, yeah, nervous kid, you know, refereeing uh, at the highest level uh, in the United States was, was the NC2As with Stanford and Cal were the two teams. And I learned a lot there. And uh, from there, I was very lucky to be selected to be one of the international referees. And I worked my way up. I world, refereed some world championships, some world cups. Traveled, traveled the world because of water polo, and I have a lot to do, thank water polo, and then refereed the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney. Now, during that time, I also felt I should give something back, so I ended up being the treasurer of USA Water Polo, as well as the vice president. So those were four-year terms which I served, and I continued until recently still involved with helping referees become better by evaluating them. And also I was very involved in the women's water polo movement, who in 2000, when I refereed the Olympics, was the first Olympics for the women who we took silver at that point in time. And have since ta- taken a lot of goals. That's kind of a, a just a quick thing of my water polo career. Yeah, and that is a quick version. So I have to ask, how do you, and you have a, you've had a family as well, 
how did you make time for a city manager position, which is usually not a nine to five job? And then you move, you have family, and then you've you've been doing these water polo events, getting all the way to the Olympics. And this kind of goes, I'm going to kind of go into your habits. How did you create your own habits, which enabled you to be so involved in such critical activities throughout your life? Well, you know, there's an old saying about volunteerism, you know, that uh, if you want somebody to volunteer and do a good job for you, then you you hire the busiest person, you know, you know, those who volunteer and spend a lot of time because they somehow make time. So it was, water polo was a very good passion of mine. My, my wife and then my three kids were affected by it. Maybe not always positive because I was gone a lot, but they're very supportive of my avocation and uh, very proud of things that I accomplished during that time. But I think that you just have to, you know, I always talk about work balance, life balance. Maybe I'm not, haven't been the best at it, at all. But what I did was I knew that I, I wanted to spend more time with my kids. We'd go on vacations, those type of things. I've actually t- took my son to the uh, 2000 Olympics for him to go. Uh, my wife traveled a few times with me for water polo. And so there was those times that we tried to fit that in. If I had to do it over again, I'd have them on every trip I could go, you know. But that was back then, and our kids were growing up. They were going to school, and then some of the travel was during the during the school year. So I uh, always brought them back something. I guess a, a guilt gift. I guess I will call it. But uh, <laughs> but they were uh, they were always in my thoughts during travel. And my wife would actually give me a daily letter for me to read. With oh, that's and of sweet. course, I I called back whenever I could in regard to that. And and you don't just sit around and referee one game. There's all these social things you have to attend. Referees actually internationally are treated better than they are in the United States. Interesting. Interesting. That is very interesting. I want to I want to dive back into because you, you kind of glossed over it of well, we just I just found ways to I'm already was a busy, successful person. And I just found a way to make more time. But what type of habits? did you create so you can actually make that happen, right? You know, if you've got to be on top of things to to be able to make sure you're getting things that didn't work. And then in the evenings or wherever it may be, you know, travel around and make that time, right? To be involved in a whole different activity. So what did you do? What what specific habits did you do for yourself? You know, maybe it's just these personal daily habits you were doing. Perhaps it was more longer term habits, but how did you help make sure that you could achieve it and get, get those things done? Well, I was a Stephen Covey fan as far as seven habits. So I tried to follow those habits. First things first, try to understand people. And that's always been something that I've took classes as well as read the book. And I think that's a good example of you can follow those type of habits and develop those type of habits and try not to try to focus on those as opposed to forgetting one or two of them. And I think you could do almost anything with limited time that you have uh, in with work, water polo, and family. And so uh, what's most important for that day and get that those things that are most important. Too many people put a to-do list, as they would say, and that to-do list, you end up saying, boy, I haven't done anything. So I picked the, the low-hanging fruit, which really isn't a priority. And so you just have to stay, I think, be disciplined to do those type of things. I hope that answered your question. No, thank you. And, and I, 
I love it for a couple of different reasons. Um, number one, I think you hit on something really important there is we can be busy, but not busy strategically. You know, this is where having a focus on, I think it's one of the most common things in the world. We'll run in and talk to our staff and, and we're trying to get a strategic initiative and fixed, you know, resolved, implemented. And, and the most common responses were too busy. Right. But they're, they're busy on their normal things. They're not busy on moving things in a different direction or improving what we're doing. They're just staying busy because they don't want that to change. And they're comfortable, if you may, with their current habits that they're doing. And, and I think that's a very important thing that you said there is, is finding, making the time to focus on those things that are going to make you better, going to reduce waste, or going to um, create real value. I appreciate you bringing up the seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, Stephen Covey was incredible man. And, and we just recently recorded the podcast and it's been released for Stephen M. R. Covey. Um, he was actually on our podcast. And, and what was so neat about his story is he shared about his father. And I think one of the neatest things he said was he was even a better father than he was an executive. You know, that, that's a profound thing. So here he was, he's, he, he, here's these seven things he was trying to do, right? And, and to proclaim, but he practiced them he practiced what he preached, which was what made his message last to today, you know, and it still continues to be one of the top selling books that's out there. So it was it was interesting to combine that. When you would find yourself being distracted, perhaps with a shiny object that wasn't of value, how do you get yourself back on course? Well, that happens all the time for me <laughs> as far as uh, seeing this shiny up. Well, it depends what the shiny object is. If it's something that can make you better or your organization better then it's okay to be distracted with that. If it's something that just is a shiny object and hey, that's that's neat and I think I'll just follow it. What's the other thing? Squirrel, 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 you know, uh, from that uh, one movie up, I think it was. And so if it's something that is not of value, I think you always have to reevaluate when you get distracted with something else. You're constantly reevaluating. I always tell people, Sometimes I concentrate too much on things. And so therefore, when I do, I know I've got to sit back and look at the whole picture instead of just looking at this small thing. And you do that same thing with shiny objects. You know, you get caught with a shiny object. And, you know, I always tell my staff, if you can't capture me in five minutes, then I'm going to look at a shiny object. So you need to be able, you have five minutes to capture my interest of what you want to do. So I think that the shiny object is something that can make your organization better it's okay to look at the shiny object as, as long as you can also evaluate in five minutes whether it's something that's going to be useful or not and so in five minutes once you've wasted five minutes and it's not useful then that's a total different story you shouldn't be distracted with that and i think that goes with most of my work is i usually look at things five minutes later i i make the decision if it's going to be valuable or something i need to explore more and that's how I try to get away from the shiny object. So exactly. Evaluating, making quick decisions, right? And then moving on. I think right, it's yes. a difficult thing that people have as opposed to sitting on it, right? And and that's, I think, where it's a challenge when we have a list, a book list of shiny objects and, and we can't get through because we get, you know, it confuses our mind almost, right? Because there's so right. many opportunities to go through. I want to go back to the Olympics for a moment again and you being around these world-class athletes. Perhaps if it's a surprise, it's no longer a surprise, but what surprised you, if you may, being around so many world-class athletes and just their own mannerisms or habits, what things did you consistently they, see they did to make sure they were performing at their best? Well, of course they have practice, 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 
you know, and the coaches have practiced. But one of the observations while talking to the coaches is that, you know, you get, there was only 13 at the time, 13 people that could play in the Olympics. When they cut somebody, the last one, the 14th person, I always wondered how they figured that out. Because, you know, you could say, well, that's because we needed this at this time, et cetera, et cetera. And the interesting answer, you talk about habits, is that that they told me the 14th person usually cut themselves. That all mm-hmm. of a sudden they distant themselves from the team. So I think the world, no matter how good you are, if you're not part of that team and you don't gel into that team because the fear of being cut or whatever it is, you're probably going to end up not being on the Olympic team. And so it was an interesting observation by the coaches, which I actually use for working and everything else, is that when you have a team, that the person who is fading away is either you need to bring them back in the fold because it's different. I, I don't cut them or I'm going to lose them to either something, some business, or they're just going to end up going someplace else. I don't know if that was the, the habit that you were talking about, but they, they have the same habits as any successful athletes. Work ethics very important. They know what's, what's important and what they should be working on. Their coaches are there to guide them on what they should be working on and then how they fit within the team. And that's probably no matter where you go, no matter what business, it's all the same that way, I think. What was interesting is you're, you're describing self-sabotaging though there at the end, yeah. right? Is that is that the individuals who are having fear of success sabotage themselves to almost assure, right, that they weren't going to make it as opposed to believing that they should or could or would, right? So much of that does come down to belief and then acting towards that as opposed to separating themselves, especially something like water polo, which is such a team sport. You know, it's a little bit different than some of the other Olympic sports, which is very individualized, right? And and what they do, you know, it's more measured based on time, right? Or something like that. But this is uh, when it's a team sport, they got to be within and and be connected. So that's uh, very interesting. So Andy, here you're getting ready and probably near the release of this podcast of your second retirement you found a way like you need to get back and get back in action still continue to give, but here you're getting ready to launch hopefully your successful second retirement as you head into this. How do you today, how do you measure success in your personal life? Well, my personal life, I think that I staying connected with my wife of uh, 38 years, I think is very important. Uh, having relationships with my, my children and, the, and my grandchildren, especially because those are, obviously, you don't have to raise them. (laughs) That's what your kids are doing. I measure success that I'm able to balance now just my family life and whatever next endeavor, whether it's not working, whether it's my new hobby, whatever it's going to be. You know, I thought about taking pottery up. That sounds funny, but (laughs) I did it in college and I enjoyed it. So I think that this part of my life is going to be more about more about family and staying connected as well as hobbies I create for myself. A few. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Andy, so this has been a wonderful talk. I'm so glad we've had the opportunity to this. I, I think it is impressive to just observe uh, what you've done uh, throughout your career and your vocations and with your family. You obviously mentioned The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People as, as a book that really impacted you. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps one that's one of the ones you want to recommend. But is is there a book or two, or maybe something recent or something from long ago that you've read that you 
inspired you that you like to recommend for others? Uh, Good to Great, I think, is an excellent book to read. You know, I've just picked up a book, and this is more city-related, For the Love Cities, which talks about what cities have done for little things, such things you don't think about that that makes the community, such as uh, they had a wall that was always being graffitied. And so they hired an artist to do a paint-by-numbers type of thing on this wall. And they they had the public come in and paint by numbers, and it hasn't been graffitied on since. So, so the, the, that's a great book for anybody in government. But I think most of these, I haven't read Lost at CEO, which I'm fascinated in reading. Uh, but there's been a lot of different books, that, and I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but were impressive. But I think reading is an important aspect of growth and trying to make yourself better. But the two books I can think of is uh, Seven Habits as well as Good to Great. And there's a government Good to Great too, I believe, too. Those are kind of the my go-to books and reading. Lovely. Andy, how can people connect and and if they want to learn more about or follow what you're doing uh, in the future? I'm on LinkedIn. Andrew Takata at msn.com is my email. And I think that's connected to my uh, LinkedIn account. Well, Andy, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Measure Sus podcast today. Sorry, it's been so long, Carl. Thanks very much for having me. No, I'm glad. I'm so glad we've been able to make the effort. And to everyone else who's listening, we just appreciate what you do and continue to help us get great guests on the podcast um, as we continue our climb to be we'll become one of the top 100 business podcasts in, in the US. And so uh, with that, we like to, as we always like to say, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.